Well, good morning to you all. I'd like to invite you this morning as we continue in worship. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Before we dive into God's word, let's pause and pray. Lord, we pray back to you your own words, the words you inspired in the 138th Psalm, that today we bow down toward your holy temple and we give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Father, our desire this morning is that your name would be exalted here in our singing, in our hearts, and as your word is preached. So magnify your glory now, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20 today, we're returning to our series through the Ten Commandments. And if your Bible's like mine, it's starting to sort of automatically flop open to Exodus chapter 20 because we've been here for a while. And that's a good thing. Uh, It's a good thing that we be familiar with God's law, that this is familiar territory for us. While we as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are not under the Mosaic covenant like these people were. These Ten Commandments do speak to us today. The commandments show us what God is like. These ten words reveal to us God's heart and his character and his divine attributes. It is for us in that sense. God's law also reminds us something that we need to be reminded of, that we are a people who are under authority, aren't we? We are accountable to God. We are accountable to his moral will. And what happens is we consider his moral will, which is revealed by the law, we frequently come to the realization of our sin, don't we? The law points out our need for a savior. The law points us to Christ. And for those of us who have been redeemed by Christ, we have something in common with Israel. He has rescued us. He has redeemed us. We are recipients of grace. And now, therefore, the law shows us how we, with a spirit of gratitude and love for our Savior, how we can live a life of obedience that pleases the one who saved us. So we come this morning to God's word. Specifically, we come to his law to see God, to see ourselves rightly, and to see how we must live as those who have been redeemed by sovereign grace. Our text today is the third commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I want to ask three questions of this verse, three questions of this text this morning and attempt to answer those. First of all, what does this mean? It's a very simple question, probably the first one in our minds. Secondly, why is this important? And then third, how is it that we should obey? So I'm going to frame this morning's message in those three questions. What does this mean? Why is it important? And how are we to obey this command? So first of all, what does it mean? Well, we need to look, first of all, at the name of God. What is this name that is referenced here? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The name here that's being referred to is God's name, his personal name, his covenant name, Yahweh. 
Now, the law began with God's declaration of this name. If you look back up in verse 1 and 2, it says, God spoke all these words, and he's speaking here not just to Moses, but to the entire assembly of Israel gathered there at Mount Sinai. And he says, he introduces these Ten Commandments with this statement, I am the Lord. And in your Bible, it's all capital letters there. This is not just a title. This is his name, Yahweh. This is who God is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And with that preamble, then, he launches into these Ten Commandments. And this name is not only in the preamble, it's featured here specifically in the third commandment. And and God starts speaking of himself really in the third person. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He sets this apart in the third person. It might sound kind of weird. I've known one or two people in my life who like to talk about themselves in the third person. I always think that's kind of strange, personally. Um, But God does this here for a reason. He's drawing attention to the name. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Grammatically, this name, Yahweh, is is the Hebrew verb to be, a form of it. And this is significant. We've talked about this before as we've covered this in Exodus. But God is a God who simply is. And that's why his name is declared as Yahweh, I am. God exists in and of himself. It's interesting, God's not named after anyone or anything. You know, my wife's name, Sarah, means princess. I'm named after an uncle who passed away when he was a child. But God can only be likened unto himself. Only he can say, I am. Only he is uncreated, infinite, transcendent, holy, meaning completely set apart and unique. Only he is eternal and self-sustaining. Only God can say, I am That is my name. And this name is not just what we call him. It's not just a label that God possesses either. This name really represents the fullness of who he is. His name is inseparable from his person, from his nature, from his glory. His name represents all that God is and all that God does. So the name is really shorthand for everything God has revealed of himself. In fact, that's why when Moses later will ask to see God's glory, do you know what God said to him? He told him that his name would pass before him. This is in Exodus 33. We'll be there in about 12 years maybe. But (laughs) Exodus chapter 33, Moses says, please show me your glory. Now Moses has seen the glory of God manifested in the burning bush and he's seen what's happening at Mount Sinai as there's an earthquake and thunder and lightning. He's seen the cloud of smoke, but he wants to see God. Not just the manifestation in creation of God's presence. He wants to see God himself. He says, show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. His name is shorthand for everything that he is. Now, I named my kids with much input from my wife. We worked together on that. Um, But here's the thing about parents. Parents, we have a right to name our kids, don't we? They're our kids. 
So we pick the names, and they receive their names from us. So Sarah and I chose the first name and the middle name for each of our four children, and then they bear my last name as well. But God did not receive his name. It was not given to him. Naming is an act of authority, and God names himself. He does not receive this name, Yahweh. No, he reveals it. In fact, he revealed this name to Moses here at this very site, at Mount Sinai, back in Exodus chapter 3. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, he's speaking with God here at the burning bush. If I come to them and say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am who I am. The God of promise, the God of redemption. And that is to be my name. That's how I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. This name not only represents his nature, but also God's reputation. His name is his fame. This is the name that was magnified through his mighty works. We've seen this throughout our study of Exodus. In chapter 6, verse 7, God said, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh, your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God redeemed Israel, rescued them, so that they would know who he is, so they would know his name, not just know how to pronounce it, but they would know what it meant, that he's a God who saves, a God who keeps his promises, a God of great power, who triumphs over Pharaoh and all the puny gods of Egypt. And it wasn't just Israel who needed to know. Exodus chapter 7, verse 5 says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God's name is tied to his reputation, his glory. So after this, God reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush and then proves the power and glory of his name, both in saving Israel and judging Egypt. He now starts to tell these people, these people who have been drawn into relationship with him, that they must revere his name. Because his name matters. He says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So that's what the name means. But why is it so important that they not take the name in vain? Or rather, what does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain? To take his name, or, or literally to take up his name, to use his name, refers primarily to our speech taking his name upon our lips. Now, God is not forbidding here the use of his name. He's not saying we should never speak his name. In fact, the Old Testament uses the name of the Lord about 7,000 times. So he's not prohibiting us speaking his name. Rather, this commandment is forbidding, this is important, the misuse of God's name. It's forbidding the misuse of God's name. The word vain here means empty or meaningless or for no good purpose. You might say, what's the big deal? What is God saying here about about the use of his name? Since God's name, 
as we've already seen, is inseparable from God himself. To misuse God's name, to use it lightly, or to use it wrongly, is actually to scorn God himself. It's to deny him, to deny his nature and his glory. It is to treat the most holy God with contempt if we misuse his name in any way. So there's several different ways in which we might be uh, able to misuse God's name, to take his name in vain. I'm just going to share a brief selection of these. At its most basic sense, we take God's name in vain uh, when we commit perjury. I think that's really at the heart of what's being communicated here. When we take God's name to verify an oath, when we swear by the name of God that something is true or that we will do something, but then we do not honor that oath, that is taking the name of God in vain. It is dishonoring God himself. When we take his name upon our lips, it is binding. We also take God's name in vain when we use his name with, in casual or, or a flippant manner. God is holy, but it is possible to speak about him in a way that treats God as not holy, as being somehow common or being ordinary, being unremarkable, being trivial. I think when people talk about the man upstairs or, you know, the big guy in heaven, that sort of language, that's casual reference to God. When we use phrases in kind of a, a half-hearted or sarcastic manner, phrases like, oh, praise the Lord or, or praise Jesus or something like that, I think we're in danger of using God's name in a casual or flippant manner. And that profanes God's name because he is not common. He is not ordinary. He's not to be treated like that. We take God's name in vain when we use his name in, in, in a way that is sort of a thoughtless repetition. We may be tempted to do this in prayer. The name of God becomes sort of a comma, a placeholder, while we think of what to say next or catch our breath. God must not be reduced to a comma. He also must not be reduced to an exclamation point. Um, I think probably the first thing that comes to your mind when you think taking God's name in vain is cursing. And this definitely applies to that as well. God's name is to be revered. The name of God is not just another verbal tool for us to express our surprise or to express our anger or our outrage. You know, there's some words that we would think of as curse words that are just crude. Anatomical words, Sanitary words, you know the ones I'm talking about. But there's other words that are used for swearing or for cursing that actually have a deep and eternal meaning. They have great and meaningful theological significance. Religious words like damnation and hell and the name of God and his son Jesus Christ. These are weighty realities. The word glory in, in scripture has the idea of weightiness. And we must not cheapen these words and empty them of their meaning by using them in any other way except for that which honors God and reveres him. If we use the name of God just to express our frustration or our anger or to prove a point to someone, that's not how God wants to be treated. We're taking his name in vain. You know, there's a question that people often ask, and I, I really wrestled with whether or not to bring this up, but I'm just going to do it and share my personal thoughts on this. Um, a question that often comes up is, what about euphemisms? What about, you know, oh my gosh, and geez, and, you know, things like that, that people say pretty commonly. 
Um, I'm just going to share my personal thoughts on this because this is not something that's explicitly stated in Scripture. This is my personal application of Scripture. So you're responsible to apply Scripture. That's between you and the Lord. But I'm just going to give you some things to think about. And I share this not because I'm trying to judge other people. I, I honestly did not have anyone in particular in mind as I was preparing for this morning. But I do think this is worth considering. Uh, many Christians are comfortable with these euphemisms. You know, oh my gosh, and those sorts of things. And I think the rationale is that, well, if we tweak our curse words just a little bit, then it's okay, right? Because you're not technically cursing. And probably most people use these words without even thinking that. It's just, that's just how people talk. It's a common feature of our English language. We don't give it much thought. But I would like to encourage you to think through that. Consider that. Think about it. What would it look like if you took this command to heart? Not to take the name, the most holy name of the Lord your God in vain. What would it look like if you were to carefully apply that to everyday speech? Now, you might push back and argue, J.D., you're being a little bit legalistic here. You're arguing too carefully and trying to control how we speak. But listen, I really think that ignoring the spirit of the law and arguing that, well, if we change a letter or two, it really meets the standard. I think that's actually a lot more legalistic, trying to get by on some technicalities. But just let me remind you, as you think about this, and, and this is something you need to decide for yourself and your family, let me remind you that it's not just an uptight or overly sensitive Christian that you need to worry about offending. That's really not the issue here. It's not just some pastor who's going to judge you. It's God. It's the thrice holy God. It's the God who told Moses when he drew near, take off your shoes. Because the very ground upon which you stand is holy. And it's holy because I'm here and I'm about to reveal my name to you. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 12 that we're going to be judged for every careless word we speak. That means every word spoken from the pulpit. It means every word spoken behind the wheel of your car. And every word spoken in the kitchen or the backyard or on the basketball court, or in the weight room. When your kid just broke a plate for the third time in a week. <laughs> Every careless word is going to be evaluated by Christ. It seems wise to me to be careful and to do as much as we possibly can to honor God's name. If you've not thought through that before, I'd just like to submit that to you and encourage you to think about it. Encourage you to think about it. There's another way we use the Lord's name in vain, and that's if we use it superstitiously. Um, some people think that simply saying the name of Jesus has some sort of mystical power and that that's a power we can wield. And in Acts chapter 19, we, we actually see a story of someone who tried to do this, and it didn't go very well for them. Um, there were these sons of a man named Siva, and they knew that Paul and the apostles are having this amazing ministry of miracles. And so they think, well, if they can do it, we can too. And it says that uh, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And here's what they were saying. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's an amazing story. These guys got the tar beat out of them. They run out naked and bleeding because they thought they could use the name of Jesus in some sort of superstitious, magical way to accomplish their their own goals, even good goals. And what happened when they failed wasn't that everyone in the region said, wow, apparently the name of Jesus isn't very powerful. No, they actually understood exactly what had happened. The name of Jesus is not just some superstitious tool you can pick up and use at any time you feel like it. The name of Jesus, the name of our Lord, is not a good luck charm. It's not some magic spell that we can wield. To do so is to use the name of the Lord in vain. I think also there's another kind of speech that falls under this umbrella of taking God's name in vain, and that would be false prophecy. False prophecy. There are people today who claim, God told me, or the Lord told me to tell you this. But if God has not spoken, then we dare not take that sort of statement upon our lips. If God did not speak to you, don't say that he did. This is such a serious matter that under the old covenant, there was actually a death penalty for such speech. Deuteronomy 18.20 says, The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. It's a big deal. The name of God has a trademark on it, a copyright symbol, and he authorizes us to use that in certain situations. But if you infringe upon that copyright, there will be penalties. We dare not take the name of the Lord in vain by claiming to speak for God when we do not speak for God. And then one final way we may take the Lord's name in vain is a life of hypocrisy. When someone professes to be a Christian, professes to be a follower of Jesus, but they're not. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. Titus chapter one speaks of such people. It says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. That's that's hypocrisy. It's a false profession. Romans chapter two, verse 23. Paul says, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Hypocrisy, professing to to know Christ and follow him while denying him by your lifestyle is taking the name of God in vain. And I think there's a special warning here that we ought to consider even in the context of worship. We take communion here on a regular basis. We present the elements of the bread and the cup as, as a physical profession of our faith in Christ and a celebration that by faith we have taken him unto ourselves, that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. But if you come to the table and claim the name of Jesus when you have not repented of your sin and you have not been reconciled to God through faith in Christ, that's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. That's why we try to give sort of that Surgeon General warning every time that if you come to the table, this is only for those who really truly do know Christ. So this is what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. It means we must not misuse God's name or dishonor God's name in any way. So attempted to answer this question, what does it mean? Let's move to the second question now. Why is this important? Why is this important? Why is this in the Ten Commandments? 
Remember, this is sort of like the, the constitution for Israel. All the other laws are going to be the, you know, the, the statutes and applications of these principles. But these are the underlying principles. This is the top 10. So how did Watch Your Mouth make it to the top 10 of all the things that could have been in this list? Well, I think there's two reasons here right in the text why this commandment is so important. Number one, it is the sacred duty of the redeemed to honor God. It's our sacred duty as those who have experienced his grace, those who are in a relationship with God. You see, this commandment is not only rooted in who God is, but also in what he has done for them. Remember how he introduces these commandments. I am the Lord your God, that's who he is, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's what he has done. Remember, God did not just show up one day to the children of Israel and interrupt their supper and just drop this law on them out of nowhere. This isn't random. This comes at a specific place in the story, and that matters. God had promised Abraham to make a great nation out of him and bless him. He preserved the lives of these people, incubating this, this little blooming, blossoming nation in Egypt, and had grown them there to become a numerous people. And then he hears their cries for deliverance. He sees their suffering and their affliction, and he brings them out in great power, freeing them from slavery. Now he's brought them to Sinai and he's entering into this covenant with them, preparing to bring them into the land of Canaan and give it to him, to them. So this commandment to, to honor God's name, to not take his name in vain, it's given in a deeply relational context. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. He could have just said, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. But he said, do not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. The God who loves you, the God who has redeemed you, the God who has poured out his grace upon you, chosen you, rescued you, brought you to himself, the God that you have committed to worship. Remember, they had told Moses, everything that the Lord says, we will do. So there's a relational commitment here. So it is the sacred duty of the redeemed to honor God. That's the first reason why this command is important. We must honor the one who saved us. But secondly, there's a second reason why this is important. It is also the spiritually sane thing to do. It's the spiritually sane thing to do because there's a real danger of judgment. And we find this explicitly laid out here in verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why? Here's why. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What scripture is telling us is that God takes note of each and every instance of the misuse of his name. He is jealous for his glory. And he takes it as a personal insult when someone misuses his holy name. It is folly for us, it is foolish for us to profane God's name, to dishonor him and think that it's no big deal. As my dad used to always say, he used to warn me and my brothers, if you mess with the bull, you get the horns. This is the natural consequence. If you dishonor God, there will be consequences. That's how it works. And what exactly are these consequences? Well, the vague warning here is open-ended. It doesn't tell us. It just says that he will not hold him guiltless 
who takes his name in vain. And the fact that it's open-ended, I think, makes it all the more sobering. All the more sobering. Because depending on the seriousness of the infraction, the consequences for breaking this commandment could take any number of forms. But it's interesting, we do have a concrete example of what could happen in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 24, in verse 10, it says, Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. Verse 13 continues, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Now, this is an extreme case. This isn't a slip of the tongue or casual usage by somebody who didn't know better. This is someone who knew better and blasphemed the name of God with a hard heart and a high hand. And he was put to death. Now, today, we do not live like ancient Israel did in theocracy. We are not like Israel bound by the old covenant, and we don't apply all these laws in the same way. And secondly, those who are in Christ, we who know Jesus, we've had our sins forgiven, haven't we? They've been nailed to the cross. But despite that, do not miss the fact that this is how seriously God takes it when someone profanes his name. It could lead to anything from discipline to death. And Christian, our sin in this category is something Jesus had to die for. God takes the honor of his name very seriously, and we should too. So we've looked at what this commandment means and why it's important. So now we get to the practical section. How do we obey? What does it look like for us to submit to this law? Well, I think there's very obvious sinful behaviors we need to avoid, and we've listed those already. Don't use God's name flippantly. Don't use his name just as an exclamation point. Don't use his name dishonestly. Don't use it hypocritically. Don't use his name superstitiously. Don't use his name for any purpose that is contrary to his character. But there's also a positive side to the coin. And it's this way with all of the commandments. We've looked at this already. The prohibition says, here's what's not to do. And it lays that out very clearly. But it also implies there's a positive way to obey these commands as well. And that means that we are to seek to honor God's name. Rather than misuse it, we must be devoted to his glory. We are to revere God as holy. And I want to share with you four important ways we can do this. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. Four ways that we can honor and revere God as holy in obedience to this commandment. First of all, you need to cultivate a heart that fears God. If you're serious about obeying this commandment, if you're feeling the weight of, this, of it this morning, which I hope you are, then you need to respond in obedience by cultivating a heart that fears God. You see, to truly obey this commandment requires much more than just watching your mouth. 
You you can bite your tongue all day long, but it's ultimately what's in the heart that overflows out of the mouth. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How you speak about God, how you use his name, how you bear his name, it really reflects what you actually think about God deep down inside. So Christian, you need to cultivate the right heart towards God. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Psalm 147 verse 11 says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life. Do a study sometime on the fear of the Lord in Scripture. It's essential. It's important. It's a matter of great urgency for us that we cultivate a heart that fears God rightly. If you want to cultivate a heart that fears God, then dwell on his character. Meditate on his power and his attributes. See him through eyes of faith as you read his word. If you want to cultivate a heart that fears God, pray for a pervasive sense of his presence. Albert Martin, in his little book on the fear of God, says that the most profound word in the English English language is God. The most profound concept in the English language is the sense that God is. And the most powerful sentence is that God is here. He's here. Pray for a pervasive sense of the presence of God. If you go through each moment of your day with that constant awareness of who God is and that God is here, that will help you to fear him as you ought. And if you want to grow in the fear of God, think often of your obligations to him. God is, God is here. And God has expectations from us. We are to love him supremely. We are to trust him fully. We are to submit always to his will. To cultivate a heart that fears God. And that will help you to speak of him rightly. Secondly, I want to exhort you to seek the preeminence of Christ. That's a way you can respond in obedience to this command. Seek the preeminence of Christ. We do not stand today at Mount Sinai. We live on this side of the cross. We live on this side, historically speaking, of the death and resurrection of Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to kill him for it because they knew what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be one with the Father. This idea of God's name being honored from our place in history, takes a very Christ-centered emphasis. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul writes that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul continues, Therefore, Because of his work, because of his humble obedience to the Father, because of his victory over sin at the cross, it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, on Jesus, the name that is above every name. Now, what could that be? 
What name could possibly be the name that is above every name? It's the name of God, the name of the Lord, Yahweh. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Yahweh. John 10 verse 30 says, the Son is one with the Father. And he deserves all the honor and the glory. He must be preeminent. If Jesus deserves such honor at his coming, with every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, then surely Jesus is worthy of that honor and glory now as well. Seek the preeminence of Christ. Give him the honor that is due to his name. That's why John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. That's why Paul proclaims that for him to live is Christ. It's Christ. And Paul instructs the Colossians in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Live for the glory of Christ. That's how you honor his name. A third way we can obey this command. Embrace the sacred duty of bearing his name. Embrace the sacred duty of bearing his name. Believers are those who bear the name. God told his people in the Old Testament that he was going to put his name on them. And that is what happens to us when we come to the waters of baptism. We are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We take his name upon us. And those who bear Christ's name must honor it. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Embrace the sacred duty of bearing his name. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Philippians 1.27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, Paul writes, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, obedience to the third commandment, friends, it requires much more than simply avoiding problematic speech. It's really fulfilled in a life that is lived for the glory of Christ. A willingness to embrace the sacred duty of bearing his name. Knowing that it's not just what you say, but it's your thoughts, it's your actions, it's your attitudes, it's your choices, it's your lifestyle, all of it is to point to the preeminence and the glory of Christ. So embrace that. Embrace the sacred duty of bearing his name. And then finally, we'll end with this. Resolve to trust in his name. Resolve to trust in the name of our Lord. We mentioned earlier that the law exposes our sin. It shows us our failure. There's not one of us, not a single person in this room, who has perfectly kept and obeyed this commandment throughout our lives. Not one. 
All of us are guilty. Maybe you're feeling that a little bit this morning. That's a good thing because it provokes this question. How do we escape the penalty for misusing this name? Because God will not hold us guiltless. How do we escape the condemnation of the law? Well, here's the good news. We can find grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, specifically by trusting in his name. In Acts chapter four, verse 12, it says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in the name of Jesus Christ. God promises that all those who call on his name will be saved. Romans 10, nine says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you trust in the name of Jesus Christ? Have you put the full weight of your need and your hope and your guilt and your shame? Have you brought all of that to him and trusted in his name? Not just the syllables, not just the letters, but what it represents, who he is and what he has done. Jesus is Lord. He died and rose again. And by trusting in his name, our guilt the condemnation that we deserve. He bears it all at the cross. All who have trusted in Christ can be confident. We can be assured this morning that our sins are forgiven. God now does hold us guiltless because he already punished our guilt. He punished our sin when his son Jesus Christ hung on the cross. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There is comfort for us there. There's comfort for us. So Christians, soothe your conscience this morning, not by excusing your sin or minimizing it, but by looking to the cross and remember that your sins are atoned for there. Not by your righteousness, not by your performance, not by the power of your intellect, but by trusting in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in him, it's in him that we are made right before God. Perhaps there's someone here today who does not yet bear the name of Christ. He is not yours and you are not yet his, which means that you are still in your sins and God does not hold you guiltless. Today you stand before him condemned and guilty and deserving of judgment. But if you're hearing these words today, God is giving you a chance to hear the good news that you can come to the cross, you can look to Christ, and you can trust in his name today. Believe in the gospel, repent of your sins, and receive the forgiveness that only he can offer. And then sign up to be baptized, to take his name upon you, and devote your life to worshiping and serving him. This is God's invitation to you today. Resolve to trust in his name. And when you do that, here's what will happen. As you come to trust in his name and see Christ as Savior and Lord, as your only hope, as your very life, then he will become precious to you. 
He will become so precious to you. To me, that's one of the markers of a true believer, a true Christian, is that someone who treasures Christ because you know that he is your life and there's no hope outside of him. Many of us in this room know that feeling. Christ is precious to us. We do love him, not perfectly, but truly, because of all that he has done for us. And when Christ becomes precious to you, it will not take work or effort to honor him. It will be the natural expression of our gratitude and joy. It will become a delight to us to obey this commandment, to lift his name up high, to proclaim the glory and goodness of his name and to honor him in any way that we can, especially with our words. The point of this text is very simply this. God is devoted to the honor of his name, and we must be also. That's the third commandment. So as those who have been recipients of his redeeming grace, let's devote ourselves to bearing and honoring and proclaiming the name of our gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you join me as we pray to this God in the name of Jesus? Lord, we come to you today recognizing you are Lord. You are God. You are the great I am who exists in and of yourself. You need no one and nothing. You are eternal. You are transcendent, outside and above this creation. Yet you chose to speak this world into being and to create creatures like us who bear your image, created to know you and have a relationship with you. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning that despite our sin, you loved us and you sent Jesus to redeem us to bear the condemnation and the guilt, the punishment that we deserve so that we might call upon your name in faith and be saved, be reconciled to you so that we might be adopted into your family so that you could put your name upon us. God, we confess that too often we speak of you so flippantly, so casually. We do not honor you as we should. But Lord, your word is clear and you have shown us this morning that this is important. The way we speak of you reflects how we really feel about you in our hearts, whether or not we fear you, whether or not we love you, whether or not we take you seriously. So God, give us an increased sensitivity to the sin of dishonoring and misusing your name. Give us a strong desire to honor you with all that we are. Help us to embrace our sacred duty, to live as ambassadors for Christ, to live as your children who give honor and glory to their father, to live as followers of Jesus who honor and obey and love their master. Lord, produce this holy fear and reverence in us. Make us full this morning of reverence and awe and help us to obey this command because we want to please you not because we have to jump through hoops to earn your approval, but because you have given so much to us. And as the Psalms say, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So help us to respond to your gospel in faith and in fear, in love and in honor and in devotion. 
Lord, set a guard over our mouths that we might speak only words that honor you. And help us to live all of life for your glory. Amen.